Ladies and gentlemen, a warm welcome to the London Coliseum and this evening's production of Partenope. Um, I'm Christopher Cook and I'll be guiding us through this pre-performance talk. Handel's opera Partenope was first performed at the King's Theatre in London on the 24th of February 1730. Handel, at last, was his own man, liberated from the straitjacket that had particularly irked him when he was writing for the Royal Academy of Music where its aristocratic financial backers had very fixed views about suitable subject matter for an opera. For them, it was to be opera seria, literally serious opera, with a regular theme, the clash of love and duty. The principal vocal form was to be the aria, an opportunity for the singers to show off their vocal prowess quite as much as conveying the drama of the story. So, in 1729, Handel became joint manager of the King's Theatre with the Swiss aristocrat John James Heidegger. After touring Italy to recruit singers, Handel set to work writing for his new company, Orlando, Porro and Partenope, but all three met with rather mixed public success. However, with Partenope, Handel felt free to break the rules that had governed opera seria to mix comedy with more serious matters. The opera, which is in three acts, is composed to an Italian libretto originally written in the 17th century by Silvio Stampiglia. Partenope is the queen of the newly founded city of Naples. In Christopher Alden's production, ancient Naples has become Art Deco Paris or New York in the early 20th century. But Partenope is still pursued by three suitors. The man she wants is Arsace, but he has a secret history with another woman. He was engaged to Rosmira, who suddenly turns up in Naples but dressed as a man. Then there's the shy Prince Armindo of Rose, who is totally in love with Partenope but doesn't quite know how to tell anybody. Three acts later, the couples will be sorted out to their and indeed our satisfaction, but not before another suitor, Prince Emilio of the neighbouring kingdom of Kumai, has arrived and been defeated in battle by Partenope's armies. Well, we have a quartet of guests tonight to explore Partenope, which was directed by Christopher Alden nine years ago here at the London Coliseum for English National Opera. Dr. Berta Yonkers, senior lecturer in music at Goldsmiths University of London, and with a particular interest in Handel's operas, is with us. We're also joined by Hannah-Lisa Kirken, who's covering the role of Arsace tonight, and Chris Hopkins, a member of English National Opera's music staff, and they're going to perform music from the opera. But our first guest tonight is Christian Kernin, who conducts this evening's performance. Will you please welcome Christian Kernin? Is Partenope an opera that you've always particularly admired? I mean, you were here for the first performance of it. It was your debut in the house. But have you always admired it? Yes, I've always loved it. I had a... Is this working? Is that working? Oh, sorry. That's good. Uh, um, yeah, it's an opera that I knew uh, early on. My father had an LP of the um, recording of Sigurd Kirchen from the 1970s, um, uh, which is a fabulous recording. Um, I did it with my own group, the Early Opera Company, in 2002 and three, at Buxton and uh, Olbra. And then when it came to recording uh, my first opera, I decided Partenope, because it's something that uh, really it speaks to me. There's something very unusual and something very wonderful about it. How would you characterise the sound world that Handel writes in this particular piece? Um, it's a lighter sound than we might be used to from the... 
the great war horses of uh, Roger Linda, uh, Julius Caesar, he um, very often in the texture of the orchestra, which is basically, as I'm sure most of you know, um, Handel operas are based on the strings with continuo, with harpsichord and lute. And then he adds in oboes every so often and uh, less commonly horns or trumpets uh, or flutes. Um, Sorry, I've gone blank. It, it was about how you characterise oh, yes, the, the world of this, musical world of this opera. So, so normally we're used to this four-part texture of um, the strings. In, in Partenope, uh, Handel often gets rid of the violas. Uh, actually so much that the violas in, in the pit managed to get away for two separate times for cups of tea. Glad <laughs> um, to hear it's yes, tea. Yes, exactly. Yeah, only, well, I hope it's tea. But, um, so it has a, this gives a light texture, and even then the two violin parts, the first and second violins, play together. So we have something which is just in two lines. So it has a very forward motion and something much lighter and buoyant than some of the... Uh, of course, Handel's heavier arias are always buoyant. They're wonderful. But in Partenope, there's, there's lots of these two-part textures which really um, fly by very, uh, with great vivacity. Can you think of an obvious reason why Handel should have, as you say, lightened his style for this piece? I think it's the libretto purpose uh, mainly. I mean, it's a very, very funny piece, uh, very light in its characteristics. And also, I think at that time, he was looking for something more modern, um, uh, uh, by the 1730s, Handel's style was actually quite old-fashioned. That doesn't mean it wasn't uh, revered, loved, and uh, popular. But this new sort of more Neapolitan style of composition of two separate lines going was something I think he wanted to, to embrace. Do you suppose that when he'd been uh, touring Italy looking for singers and uh, thinking about what he was going to do at the new theatre, do you suppose that he suddenly became aware that, that as it were, the musical idiom was changing? Absolutely. I mean, I think he got lots from these, these trips abroad, and it's particularly this one where he went out to find a whole new set of singers. Um, who in essence were slightly less starry than his initial Cuzzoni and Senesino and people, but they were very fine singers. And um, I think going around the theatres, he definitely heard some of these operas. He may well have heard Vinci's uh, opera on Partenope, which is actually called Rosmira Fedele, because she's very much the, the opposing figure or the, um, uh, the equal to Partenope. Normally it would be the, only be the leading man, who's Arsace in this. But in this opera, we have three people of equal importance. I'm going to talk with Berta later about the mixture of comedy and seriousness, but does this, for you, um, pose perhaps an added difficulty that the world that Handel creates isn't quite what a Handelian would expect, certainly from the earlier period? I think if, you, if somebody had only knew only uh, Rodolinda and Julius Caesar, they would find Partenope tricky. But if you know operas like Agrippina, which he wrote very early in his career, um, you know he had a good gift for comedy. Uh, it's something that he doesn't have so much in his work. Of course, we have Xerxes. Uh, we have Imineo, which in, in a way is a comedy. It's not strictly comic, but there's a real irony running through it. And even in his oratorios, like Susanna, which is a deeply serious piece about um, uh, these two elders who basically try to, to rape Susanna. Um, as, aside from all the seriousness as well, he paints them in a slightly comic manner, making them more ridiculous. Are there particular challenges for the soloists, the three suitors um, and, uh, well, four suitors and the queen? 
as with all Handel uh, operas, the arias are very tricky. Uh, Partenope has an absolutely fiendish opening uh, aria, which uh, no soprano should have to suffer. <laughs> um, the poor girl, I mean, if they could have put it in, like, three arias in, but no, she has to come out there and sing this incredibly difficult aria, um, which has a top scene. I don't think there's many. Berta might be able to help me with this. Yeah, the only with the top C. There's there is one top C in Atalanta for a soprano castrato, but as for a female singer, this is the only time she has this note. Of course, that's not a tricky thing for for Sarah Tyne, and she can pop those C's out easily. But um, uh, the run up to it, all the uh, the uh, coloratura is fiendishly written. How good do you think we are in general at rethinking Handel's opera? I mean, it's true that 15, 20 years ago, it was only those who were absolutely obsessed with Handel who ever saw performances, but now they've become a regular part of the operatic repertoire. But how good are we at removing them from the Baroque period, removing them from the 18th century, removing them from the historical period in which Handel set them? I think the important thing is that we mustn't remove them. I think we have to still, as, as a basic point, know about where they started and build on that. Now, uh, with my company, Early Opera Company, I was very, at the beginning, when we first started it, I was very, very um, uh, hard-nosed about it, and I, I insisted that the only productions that would be done by directors had to be done in the present day. Um, I wasn't, I'd sort of grown a bit sick of seeing Handel in what I call National Trust tea towel productions. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, but I've, I've, I've grown much more lenient in my old age and I can really appreciate it. I was in Karlsruhe a couple of years ago and they did a, an exact rec uh, recreation of a uh, Baroque production which I thought I was going to hate, all candlelights, all everything, and I was absolutely entranced. It was like watching no theatre. Mm. It, had, it had its own beautiful sort of um, rhythm. Having said that, I also adore productions, uh, Peter Sellers' production of Theodora, which I think in Glyndebourne, which set a standard for, for, uh, for all productions of, his, of Handel's music. And I particularly love this production. I think Christopher has, a, has found uh, a space for the characters to breathe. Are there rules about when you update it? Here we are somewhere in the years between the two world wars in the most wonderfully stylish um, Art Deco world that seems to have stepped straight out of an old card play. But are there rules? What has to work? The only rule I would say for a stage director is that they've got to respect the da capo aria or arias that aren't da capo. I mean, I think it's uh, particularly easy to fill them with business. Now, I know some people have said that, that this production, Christopher, also does the same, that there's always lots of things going on. I would totally disagree. And I think when you watch this, I'd like you to just think about the fact that he's, I think he's enhancing the, um, uh, the story and enhancing the musical lines by his, um, what he's asking them to do. It's not just business. You know, nobody suddenly gets out um, some lipstick and puts it on during the coloratura, which seems to be often one of the... Uh, <laughs> the, the go-to gestures of modern directors. I think it's very much... Uh, I think Christopher has great integrity and respect for the form. It's obviously important for you that the conductor and the director work very closely. Do you have to agree with each other? Um, well, that's funny, thinking about this production. Uh, we don't always have to agree with each other, though luckily with Christopher, we always manage to, manage to. He's very, the, 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 uh, the terrible twins, as I call them, him and David, are very um, 
know that I, from both of them, I know that they know the school better than I do when we come to do something. I did Cozy Fantasy with Christopher in New York uh, and this production here, and he, he really knows what he's talking about. And I think it would be foolish sometimes, as a musician, sometimes it's easy for me to say, I'm the conductor, I make these decisions. I don't think Christopher ever gave a bad note. Sometimes he goes a little bit hysterical during the rehearsals and starts to conduct... <laughs> uh, which gets which gets a little tiring as he'll know I've said that to him so I'll say it to you but he's only doing it through it's this and uh, his understanding of the energy that you need and I think if you go with that and I, I'm somebody that likes a bit of a push in these uh, in these pieces I think when you work together you get something very special in the same way that he helps with the music I help with the production saying no I don't think that works or why don't we try this or let's have you know him doing a, a tap dance number or something i mean things to uh, things that we collaborate on are, i think always the best you've said that every production should uh, and every performance indeed should take risks what do you mean when you said that i mean uh, i think the, the initial within the um creation of the performance itself you should take risks there should be there shouldn't be um an attempt to censor uh, or to downplay elements that you come up with. I think if you if you have the idea is good, you should run with it. Um, in performance, um, I would say I think it's keeping the singers on their toes and not letting it flag. Um, I think it's very important that there's a, a, a momentum going, and I think there's a very there's a tendency in 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 opera to really fall behind the singers in the pit. Uh, in which case you get something which is, is very sort of louche, but, but not, um, it doesn't have bite to it. I'd much rather slightly push the singers uh, uh, and encourage them to, to go to the limits of what they can do. Not everyone likes it, of course. I, I, I often get criticised for pushing a bit too much. But I think it basically gives a, a, an inner life to what's going on. At the heart of this production is perhaps the notion of artifice, of pretense. We're in the world of Art Deco, which is absolutely about skin-deep design. Um, the characters are constantly playing, in a sense, uh, their emotions to us. Is the real feeling tucked away in Parthenope? Absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, I think this production really um, shows it. I mean, there's real feel feeling in, in all of Handel's operas, I think, uh, of varying degrees of, of success, I think. We can't pretend that all his operas are the same standard. But the in real answer to that is, if you're talking about artifice, is, is there anything more artificial than Baroque opera? It's the most artificial thing, people saying, singing something, singing something differently and then saying it again. But of course, it's, it, in a way, it's, it's theatre of the absurd. But in a way, it's a wonderful glimpse. Somebody says something, they then say something uh, contrary to it, and then they return to the initial text, but with the knowledge of what they've just said. And you get this amazing uh, portrait of the human soul, really, of, of, of the agonies or the ecstasies that they're going through. Christopher, I know that... You... <gasps> he, did, he wrote to me saying I was called Christopher. I got a very, very firm email. <laughs> Christian. Um, Christian, Christian. <laughs> um, I know you have to go because you're busy to get yourself ready for the performance. Can I just say thank you very much? No, for being thank, with you. Us. thank you. I hope you enjoy the show as well. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we're, we're joined now by Chris Hopkins, who's a member of English National Music Staff, and by Hannah Lisa Kirken, who's covering the role of Asace tonight. Will you welcome our next guests, please?
had that one there. Yeah, then you can, you can escape this ink. One more feather along, Lisa. There we go. There we go. So, let's begin. Who exactly is Arsachi? He is... Um, he is a man who has become entwined in a certain way of living and he's become in, enchanted by this woman, almost, almost under her spell. He enjoys being under her spell, I think. I, I, I think he's perhaps slightly weak-willed in that he seems to be quite influenced by the actions of others and... Um, and he's infatuated. So that's interesting. So it's an infatuation with a woman who quite clearly has power. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's very hard not to conclude, given his past history, that frankly he's a love rat. <laughs> um, I don't think he's a love rat. I, when we were rehearsing, uh, when we started the cover rehearsals, um, our, the assistant director told us that Christopher had been talking about the idea of intoxication of love, love being intoxicating. And I think that's what it is. I think he's become intoxicated by this woman and he has no control over it. So I don't think he's a love rat because I do think when Rosmira comes back into his life and he realises the situation and he realises what's at stake, um, he, he does have that sense of, oh no, oh gosh, you know, and he, and he does love her. I don't think he's a rat. So, so there's a kind of journey for him of discovering what true feelings are. Yes. That, that, that he has to realise that the feelings for Partenope are absurd, um, whereas really the love he feels, for, or as Mira, and he eventually feels for her, is the touchstone of what their relationship should be. Yeah, I feel like it's almost two realities. I feel like that, that when you first meet him, he is completely and utterly in love with Partenope. In this, in this reality, um, he doesn't even think about Rosmira. He's in love. When Rosmira comes in, the reality changes. And in that reality, the relationship with Partenope is more of infatuation and the re relationship with Rosmira is more love. Mm -hmm. I think it is two realities. This is a production in which you get to wear the trousers. Yes. Um, what are the difficulties of seeing Nietzsche's roles? <laughs> um, I think you have to remember that, ultimately, the audience isn't daft. They know you're... Well, I hope, so. I hope they know you're a woman. <laughs> they know you're a woman. Um, they might, they've seen your name in the programme. They, they know it's a mezzo. Um, so it's, you've got to be very careful not to pretend to be a man and pretend to be what you think is manly you know you're already in this production you're in a suit you're you've got a short wig you've got a, a mustache there's not much more that you need to do visually to convince so you don't need to strut like uh, you know you might think um the difficulty for 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 me and for i think a lot of singers is is the way you might interact with other people the way I would interact with a friend who's a girl is very different to the way a man interacts with somebody he loves. And so interaction is, is very different and mannerisms and the way, for instance, the way a woman uses her hands and the way a man uses his hands. And um, it, it, it can be challenging, but also because I think there's, there's such a 
a strong sense of this idea of gender fluidity in this production particularly. Um, I feel like you can almost, you don't have to worry about it as much as you might have to in other productions. Mm. What are the, the vocal challenges of the, the arias that, ha that handle rights for you? Um, the sheer quantity of them. <laughs> um, there's a lot, but there is a lot for everybody. Um, the stamina of it. I find, particularly with, with this one, a lot of our Sartre's arias are quite um, slow or they're, they're within that kind of that they have that feeling. And then all of a sudden at the end of act two, he's got this massive fireworks aria. And then in act three, he's got two of the most serene, beautiful arias. So it's pacing, I think is vocally pacing it is, is a challenge. And the recitative is a challenge because you want to be able to find the right quality in the voice for it to sound like it's spoken dialogue but that doesn't make it too difficult then when you have to very quickly jump into an aria um so you, you know you can't sing recitative like you sing an aria because then it wouldn't be so it, there are a lot of there are a lot of challenges it, it's Christian was saying uh, that the last thing you want is to have business when you're singing one of these arias. Uh, you don't want to be putting lipstick on, uh, fiddling with your gloves, wondering why your shoes come undone and bending over. In other words, what you need to do is just let the voice um, uh, be heard. Is that because in the end all the business you need is in the music? That The character for each of these arias at that moment for, say, Arsace, is perfectly evident if you listen Yes, but I, I also agree with, with what Christian said that any business that does occur, um, particularly in this, for instance, it's used in the right way to enhance. I think as long as you're, you're doing something that can help or can enhance it, um, yes, it's all there in the music, of course it is. But it, it, it helps sometimes to have, to have things that you can do physically that that can encourage you to consider why you're doing something different or, yeah, yes. <laughs> I don't know best well, how to. St staying with music, what are you going to sing for us? I'm going to sing the, the, the fireworks aria. Um, <laughs> hooray. <laughs> hooray. Um, this is, it's, in this production it's called, uh, it's Raging Whirlwinds. This is the end of act two. Um, Arsace, by now, knows that Rosmira is Rosmira um, and knows that he's not allowed to say anything and is trying to apologise and trying to... And, and she's, she's kind of reciprocating his, his love and, and then he says to her, you know, do you forgive me? I, have I been punished enough? And he says, and she says, well, no, actually, not yet. Just hang on a little bit more. And this is his, his kind of explosion of, oh, no, I thought it was, all, I thought it was going to be okay and... And so now we, and, and he goes a bit crazy and, and Handel wrote some spectacularly fast notes <laughs> to show it. So that's what I'm going to, that's what we're going to perform for you. Fantastic. Beaches Brook. <laughs> um, ladies and gentlemen, while you're getting ready, you can see, of course, images on the screen from tonight's production. Please, 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 
Annalisa, Chris Hopkins, thank you both very much indeed. Our final guest this evening is Berta Jonkers, who is a scholar of Baroque opera. Will you please welcome Berta Jonkers? The 
Better, when Handel began to work on Partenope in 1730, what was the London opera scene like? What was going on? Yeah, it was, it was a very turbulent time. And can you all hear me? Yes. It was very turbulent, and it was a critical moment because there has just been a massive failure, um, basically a crash of the first opera company, which had been the first time a business had been created in opera, and everybody had lost tons of money. And um, there was a, a general kind of shrugging the shoulders and say, hi, well, this is your problem now. And they left it up to, to Handel to be the artistic director and Heidegger to be the business, di business director. But, but it was up to the directors then to raise the subscription. So it was, it was a tricky time. The puzzle is perhaps, superficially, what on earth with the English aristocracy suddenly doing falling in love with Italian opera in this period? That's because of the grand tour. Um, a bit like the gap year today, uh, where gap year, I don't know if anybody knows, <laughs> going off on your gap year or going off on your, your grand tour, um, you then got a taste for opera and it was the fashionable thing then to actually just fall in love with particular singers, especially, rather than productions or composers. It was all about the singers. So, so I mean, it, it was kind of fans, a kind of clack, exactly as elsewhere in the history of opera, and indeed yes. uh, rock music. Yeah. Well, I think we've all just experienced the magic of the human voice, that wonder that any human being can do that thing. Um, this, was some, this was a science that was entirely new. It was a science, almost, of singing as well as an art that was being brought together. No one thought the human voice could do that. Uh, and so, so the, there was also this kind of incredible fascination. There was almost like, they were like the high priests, as it were, of music making, the singers. And Partenope, where exactly does this come in Handel's career? Christian was suggesting it's different from the earlier works, where there's a kind of heavy texture, or heavier texture. So, so what's going on? Where does it come? Well, I think... Um, Christian was absolutely right in saying there was a moment of artistic freedom because in this first opera company that had crashed called the Royal Academy, um, Handel had been a mere composer uh, and hired, and he had to actually compete with other composers, whereas in the second opera company, he was in charge. So he had total artistic control. So he could do what he wanted. And I think one of the things he did, first of all, was to unleash that comic vein. He was a very funny man. This is what people, if, they read, if you do read, get to read some of his um, letters, and there are these wonderful collected documents that are just being published now, um, complete letters, etc. He had a very dry, very witty sense of humour. And, and you can hear that in this, in this opera. Uh, but there had originally been some doubts about the mixing up of comedy and tragedy as a yeah. kind of rather unfortunate hybrid form. Yes. Well, actually, that was because it's a very old-fashioned form. I mean, what happened was it was just an old old libretto. It came from 1699. And that was at a time when things were more loosey-goosey and you could mix up comedy and tragedy and you could do more outrageous things on the stage than later on in the from 1710s onward there was a kind of reform of opera that went on. So this preceded that reform and again gave greater license to um, Handel's musical imagination. So the Handel had tried, or we think it was Handel, who tried to get uh, Partenope actually uh, mounted while in the first company in, in 1726, and that idea was shot down uh, by a certain Owen Sweeney. Um, 
long story. Who, but I, I think well, it, who is Mr. Sweeney? Mr. Sweeney. Well, he was a he was a he was a charlatan actually. He um, <laughs> <laughs> he had been a music director and he'd stolen a lot of money and run away and was hanging out in Venice actually living high off the hog off of other people's money. Um, but one of the things was he was kind of then a self-elected talent scout and still kind of uh, was useful to, the, fr to, to the, the London Opera Company at that time, to the directors, to have someone on the ground to say, oh, this is a really hot production, mm. these are really hot singers, you should get this for next season. That was essentially what he was doing. But he also had his own interests and he wanted to steer the productions in a particular way. We th possibly, my personal opinion is, because he was friends with Senesino. And I think it was that friendship. Then he kind of looked at the part of Asace, which Senesino would have sung, and said, um, you know what? It's too nuanced, actually. We, yeah. we should remind everybody that Senesino is, of course, one of the great, um, um, how shall we put it, uh, castrati. Yes, you can uh, certainly put it like uh, that. Singers of the age. <laughs> yes. um, so we could look at Handel's decision to turn this libretto into an opera in two ways. We could either assume it's him saying, I was right and you were wrong, yes. to Sweeney, or you could say what he sees when he starts working in 29 and 30 is an opportunity for a new kind of opera. Now, which, which would you subscribe to? I think it was the second, definitely. Uh, as I said, I think his imagination was always fired by words. Handel was a person who, if you started to recite um, Milton or any great poetry, there are stories, for instance, just reacting, sitting at the keyboard and reacting in real time, saying, oh, that's wonderful, oh, this is great, and just write, you know, writing melodies in his head and doing the harmonization. So I think he, uh, and his Italian was very good, of course. He had lived in Italy for some time. So he heard, he had also the sound of Italian in his ear. And Stempilia, who was the first, who was the librettist, was a wonderful writer, a great, great Italian poet. So it was all of those things. It was the, the sound of the words. It was this nuance of the characters. And it was this, and it was this delicate mix, really. It's a very delicate, uh, it's not farcical. It's not broad. It's a really delicate probing of how people deceive themselves. If, if the words for Handel and indeed other composers in the Brock period come first um, and the music afterwards, he's also trying perhaps to do something new with the score, the music here. Oh, yes. And, and I think you'll hear that wonderfully. I mean, Christian does, and, and, and all the artists tonight, um, I went to the dress rehearsal, it's just, they just do an astonishing job of bringing out the nuances and the score, the, those shifts in the texture. And I think one of the, one of the things... He, he was really curious and in experimenting with was what I call a chiaroscuro of, of, of feelings. So you just heard this rage aria, which is totally over the top. And I'm so upset and I'm just, I can't even contain myself and everything spills over. And then again, that you get the most quiet, the most tender, the most sacred of feelings, which is actually then represents as a kind of journey that uh, the hero has gone through. Asachi goes through a journey which he goes from being a rather self-indulgent, I think, uh, giving into this uh, obsession with Partenope, to a really breastbeating, oh my God, I'm such an idiot. You know, what have I done? <laughs> uh, and you can hear that in Handel's music. And I just think that's one of the things that's it's so special about this opera. Are, are the arias, as some have said, shorter 
than in earlier works? There, some of them are, and what's very interesting about that is that when they're shorter, it's usually for a dramatic reason. So one character is cutting off another character. I don't want to um, spoil the entertainment frame, but there is a very funny moment in the, in the first act when um, there's a duet going on uh, which normally would have just gone on and on between two lovers and how much they love each other. And then a third party walks in and then the F word, because it's like, oh my God, we've been caught. You know, <laughs> in the act. And, and of course, it's, it's just uh, then cuts off. But there's several moments like that where the dramatic action itself calls for characters to interrupt, to cut them off. And that's why he then uses these shorter forms. It sounds, in that sense, almost conversational. You know, it, I mean, broad mm -hmm. terms. Broad terms, again, and it, he could do that because this, the libretto allows him to. So there are moments like that. that it, it's an interesting mixture of highly formalized arias like the one you just heard and a much more kind of flow, give and take between um, recitative and aria and then people moving in and out of, of the dialogue to bring the drama forward, which is something quite unusual in Baroque opera. We've talked about Senesino, um, we might also think of Farinelli and that extraordinary generation of women singers. Okay. Um, to what extent does Handel tailor the music round the gifts of his singers? I think he knew their voices because he went and talent, he took a long time. When he basically had a sabbatical from 1729 and was tasked with finding voices. And because he'd had such a deal of trouble with the cast he worked with earlier, he was determined not to work with any of those top stars. He wasn't going to hire Fastina. He certainly wasn't going to hire Cusonia when we have this in his letters. Like, no way I'm working with that bitch, basically. <laughs> and, 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 and he and Senesino had a very difficult relationship. Um, so, so he wanted to actually go and see what was out there. And he went actually to, and, and, and sourced his singers from three different um, Italian cities, other, you know, from Naples, from Rome, and from Bologna. Uh, so he went to a great deal of trouble, and I think he probably listened to their voices with a sharp ear and understood where all the vocal strings lay. Do you think, as he's listening to these voices, he's already knowing what he wants to write? I mean, it's a great speculation. He's casting before he's even written anything. Oh, yes. Uh, and the thing is, you can... It's fascinating being a music historian in this area because you get, actually do get to know people's voices by looking at the score. I mean, I think I could possibly they'll pick out a Senesino aria without actually knowing, you know, that it had been because they had, because Handel would and other composers would write to that particular skill set. It was a, it was an instrument, but it was also, of course, a particular manner of execution that they cultivated and were known for. Christopher Alden Alden has updated uh, Partenope to the world of the bright young things yes. uh, in the, the, the years between the two world wars. Does that work for you? Oh, it's perfect. And I'll tell you, we were talking a little about earlier about um, stage business, putting on lipstick and so on, which is just a distraction. And this one of the many delights of this production is that everything has sense. That is to say, actually, without the action, because this is a foreign language, Baroque opera is very far away from us today, we might not get the jokes. And there are a lot of musical jokes embedded in the score, 
and embedded and a lot of Italian kind of wordplay as well, which you know the the translators done a wonderful job bringing out. But all of that wouldn't would 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 pass you by, I think, and without this incredibly sensitive production, which is rightly set in a world of deception and above all self-deception. This is about people who are kidding themselves about who they're really in love with and what their true motivations are. I would say that's even true of Partenope. So at one level, it is about a world of surfaces. Yes. And, and people having to now, in this opera, the principal characters, yes. look beyond the surface. That's right. And each of them, each of theirs is a journey to look beyond the surface or to actually be honest with themselves. I mean, Ross Mira is assuming a surface in order to punish her lover. Um, but she has to admit to herself, you know what? I really love this guy. Oh. You know, <laughs> and 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 you you hear that in the music, this anguish um, in all of her. Particularly, he uses Sicilianos. It's really interesting how he uses these different dance forms in the Baroque, which again, people would not necessarily understand, oh, that's a minuet, oh, that's a Siciliano today, and then extrapolate from that what that means for the character or what, the, what it means for the expression. So Alden has done a wonderful job in teasing out those meanings for us. Why, why do you think Partenope, prior to this production, um, has been so neglected when there's been this extraordinary revival of interest in Handel, one of the most exciting things for many of us of a certain age. Um, why was Partenope always the kind of orphan of the storm? Yeah, there's... A, um, all right, I think there's three basic reasons. One is, it's very long, right? To, and <laughs> Well, long and hard, so that's really two reasons. Um, second is, there's no good addition. Uh, the critical edition, there still isn't... Well, they're working on one with the collected edition of Handel. Um, but that's a big problem when you're doing a, a production. And, but perhaps the biggest reason is it couldn't be classified. As you say, it, it, is it a comedy? Is it a tragedy? There's been a lot of, you know, debate around that. So I think, again, it was something that wasn't easily understood from an artistic level. Better, thank you very much thank indeed. You. Don't escape. Don't escape. Um, oh, of course I don't. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, we have a little time in hand for Sorry. you to ask questions. Perhaps we can coax back our two performers, Christopher too, uh, to join us. Um, and if anyone would like uh, to ask a question, there is the celebrated roving microphone. Um, put up your hand and catch my eye. Yes. There were castrati singing the roles that are now sung by sopranos and mezzos. Was the countertenor voice not used at all? And when did they use a woman rather than a castrato? Better. Right. Um, they, they, they used a woman and a castrato voice, which was... Um, um, the mezzo-soprano was the standard range for a castrato, not soprano. Castrati were quite rare. Uh, so mezzo or alto voices were the norm. And it was interchangeable, actually, uh, largely, with, except, with, with some big exceptions. So if you were going to be the lead, per, the principal, and the hero um, within a, a, a love, uh, you know, within a, within a couple, then it would have to be a castrato. Right, but the second tier would be could be a woman, and the 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 countertenor was never used in operas, except uh, I think John Beard started off at very early as es in Esther, 
um, in, a, in a really, really minor role, but the countertenor was just used in chapel role in, 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 in sacred music at this time, but was not part of the, um, the stage culture because those ranges were covered by, as you pointed out, either women or the castrati. Another question. Another question. Yes. Hold, wait for the microphone, if you will. What did Handel have against violas? Well, Christian's gone. He would have... I don't think he had anything against violas, but in this particular... He was looking for that effervescence, that bubbly sound. Is it no coward? Think no coward. Think champagne. A play of characters, a play of identities. Everything's very light, but underneath there's that tugging seriousness. And somehow violas didn't fit into that picture. And I think it was about the mood. Um, that, that, that's why for this specific work, I don't think he had anything against violas. <laughs> well, there is that awful joke, isn't yes. there, about poor violas. You know, I took my viola to a party, but no one asked me to play. <laughs> There's um, also that. <laughs> do we have another question? We have a last question, because time is at our heels. Anyone like to ask a last question? Well, could Just wait for the microphone to come. <laughs> Thank you. I really enjoyed your aria. I thought it was absolutely wonderful. I was very jealous. I just wondered if, at the checkout of the supermarket, you ever felt like letting fly with it. If I ever felt like what? If you ever felt like letting fly at the supermarket checkout with that aria. Oh, often, yeah. And I do often get... It's funny, I often get caught um, sitting on the tube or at the singing along these kind of things. I do, and I... and. And I think this is brilliant. You know, I could I could really use this as vengeance. But no, I it's it's this is a luxury. That that aria is a bit of a luxury actually. And I think um, it's fiendish, but uh, it it is it's good fun. It's really good fun. So when when I was asked to sing that tonight, I was like yes. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, and thank you. Thank you to all of you. But above all, thank you to our guests who have shared their thoughts with us. Thank you all. Thank you. Pleasure.